This is New America Now, dispatches from the new majority. I'm Shireen Sadegi. Coming up, the Occupy Wall Street protesters are occupying the nation. You know, 1% of the country right now basically controls all the wealth. And there's 99% of us on the bottom that are being left out in the cold. The Taliban, why the U.S. has failed to get rid of them. They have God, and they have OPM, and they have guns. And that's what they ran the country with. The buzzing and the bites. The fever is here to stay. Half of all human deaths have been due to malaria since the Stone Age. And we're talking about a disease that we know how to cure. And we've known how to cure it for hundreds of years. And a new play about the Armenian genocide. All that and more coming up on New America Now. While America's airwaves, television screens, and front pages have been duly preoccupied with massive street demonstrations and revolutions in the Middle East, the American people have been busy with their own protests. This week marks one of the biggest nationwide protests in American history since the days of the Vietnam War. Joining us today to discuss the Occupy Wall Street movement and the nationwide protests is Bert Canavelli, the organizer of OccupyTheNation.com. Bert, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So tell us what is happening. What is the Occupy Wall Street movement? Uh, actually, it's, it's people tired with what's going on in American society today. We've got bankers, we've got people on Wall Street, stockbrokers, people in corporations that are supposedly too big to fail, and the other 99% are getting left out. We're dealing with home foreclosures, we're dealing with high education costs, we're dealing with public education that is is being taken by the corporations and, and squandered to fill their goals. The American people are getting left out with bailouts, we've had, we've had the corporations that are too big to fail getting billions, multi-billions of dollars while people aren't even able to provide and feed for themselves. We've got children and families living in cars that have been foreclosed upon, and people are just tired of it. We're not getting help from the American American government. The financial uh, system we have right now is in a shambles, and it's just people, you know, voicing their opinion. What does it mean when you say, we are the 99%? Well, it's, you know, 1% of the country right now basically controls all the wealth. And there's 99% of us on the bottom that are being left out in the cold. We don't get all the the benefits like they do on Wall Street. You know, the the big corporations on Wall Street and around the country right now basically are influencing the the political system and, and getting their way. The regulations that are in place aren't really affecting those people. We've got people that are squandering money on Wall Street that, you know, they're not being held accountable. But this has been going on for years. Why, why do you think this movement is, is happening now? Well, you know, it, it's been going on for years. People have, have kind of kept in the closet and said, yeah, you know, somebody needs to do something. The last couple of years, people have finally opened their eyes and see. You know, we've had hundreds of thousands of people being foreclosed upon, and the government's not there to help. And it's just kind of like, oh, well, that, that's life. You know, pick up your stuff and move on where you have big corporations that are just getting bailed out, you know, multi-billions of dollars, and, you know, billion-dollar bonuses being put out to these corporations, and the rich are getting richer, and everybody, the 99%, are left in the cold. 
who is behind this movement? Who organized this movement? Because it's happening all over the country. Basically, it was started by Adbusters, which is a Canadian Canadian uh, magazine, and they are the ones that originally got behind the idea of let's occupy Wall Street. Well, after that, it started gaining popularity amongst Anonymous, amongst Twitter, amongst Facebook, and they actually had a small group of people that went down a couple weeks earlier and camped out on Wall Street steps. Well, they seen that you know people could voice their opinion, people could get out there, speak their mind, and stand up for the the freedoms and and rights were afforded to in the Constitution. So as soon as that started happening, more people kind of got on the, on the bandwagon and said, you know, we need to express our opinions. We need to get out there and tell people what's going on. We need to tell people that, you know, we're being neglected in this society today. So with, with the spread of, of the Internet and being able to get out there and tell people, it just it, it soared through the Internet. And as soon as the Occupy Wall Street started in, in New York, within hours, everybody was thinking to themselves, well, we need to occupy our city, our, our financial district. So within hours, you probably had several dozen other cities around the country that decided to hold, organize, or, you know, organize the Occupy events. And your website, uh, Occupy the Nation, is, is the, the place where people can turn to to find out where all the occupations are happening. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the information and news that you've gotten uh, about protests throughout this country? Um, yeah, we've had several uh, big protests. We've got Occupy Boston right now, which has uh, well over a thousand people at a lot of their their uh, general assemblies. We've had Occupy LA, which has once again several thousand people. We've had them springing up in Seattle, uh, Orlando. We've got several cities in California, all up and down the coast, San Francisco. There's even middle of America, Oklahoma City, Salt Lake City. All those places, people are finally realizing we have to voice our opinion. We're not getting heard. The only, the top 1%, the big bankers, the Wall Street execs, they're the ones that make the, the decisions. They're the ones that get heard by, by our government, our politicians. And even people in mid, middle America, the farmers that have, have been spending the last few years with drought conditions that aren't getting no help from the government, we're just getting left out in the cold. So everybody across the country, and even across Europe and, and Asia, there's people that are, are picking up Occupy events because they're going through those same set of circumstances that we are. Their government you know, is controlled by the big money politicians or the big money corporations in their country, and there's just too many people left out in the cold. What, what, do, what do people do when they occupy a city? What does that mean? What are they doing when they protest? What's happening? Tell us what's happening. Basically, we're... Centered and primarily, the people are protesting around the financial areas. And it's more of, let's be heard. We're not being heard amongst the mainstream media. They kind of, you know, want to make a mockery of everything. Don't believe it's true. Believe it's a bunch of hippies. There's doctors. There's lawyers. There's nurses. There's factory workers out there in all the cities. They're just standing up for their rights. They're occupying their parks, their financial districts, whatever area that that. They have, have gotten organized an event. And we just want to be heard. We want our government to wake up and realize that we're not being heard. The corporations control you. Please give us a fair shot. We are the people that make this country. For 200 and some years, the, the factory workers, the doctors, they have built this country. And in the last 20, 30 years, corporations have, have taken it over. And it seems like the American people have been sold out. 
In your experience in these last couple weeks of, of sort of working with the Occupy movements in this country, um, have you been surprised at the level of anger amongst the public? Personally, I think there's a lot more people out there that are still afraid to speak out. I, I'm grateful that there's been hundreds, hundreds of thousands of people across the, the country right now that are willing to speak out, whether it be on blogs, whether it be on the Occupy events, or the people that have donated to the different Occupy events, you know, providing food, providing tents, tarps. I think there's still a lot more people out there, though, that have that built-up anger inside that just haven't got the nerve to express their opinion and, and stand up for themselves. What's the fear? What's the risk? It, I don't know if it's really a, a fear or just the people thinking it's not going to do no good. We've been oppressed for so long, and it seems like the, the bottom tier of people, the bottom 99%, what we say isn't heard anymore. Unless you have a lot of money, a lot of corporate clout, you're just in one ear, out the other. But there's thousands of people on the streets in the nation today. They will continue to be, apparently, for quite some time. They seem to think that, that it will make a difference to just st- get into the streets and, and make their voices heard. And, and I think that's what our society has come to. We're afforded those rights in the Constitution to protest and assemble against the things that we don't like. And these people are doing a great job with these events. They've held their ground. They're standing strong. We are being heard. Mainstream media has... has gotten to the point they can't ignore us no more. We've got senators even speaking out about the Occupy events. We are being finally heard. It was, it's been too long that we haven't been heard. And even though there's a lot of people that aren't getting up and getting out of their house and either going to the events or, or printing flyers or whatever, they're still doing their thing, donating and stuff like that. But we need more people out there to help, to be heard, to spread this occupation around the country, to make our politicians and our government realize we're struggling down here. We've got people unemployed. We've got people without houses. Where's the American dream? It, it's, it's been gone for several years. And until we change the, the financial system in America, where the rich get richer and everybody else, eh, you get what's left over, it's not going to change. And I think these Occupy events are going to go on for quite some time the more people you know, realize, hey, I am one of them. I am being you know, done without because of our government not helping us out. How long do you think they will go on? How long do you think this occupation, as you call it, is going to go on? Uh, indefinitely. I'm, I think that they'll be able to last in a lot of places through the, the winter holidays. I believe that until our government actually acknowledges that we have a bigger problem than they let on, I think we're there to stay. I think it's going to take our government to actually start you know, hammering down and, and making some changes in, this, in the financial industry in America or else there's going to be more people every day that join us. From what you've seen on the streets, would you say that this is the, the biggest mass national protest in, in, in the United States since Vietnam? I, I believe it, it, was one, it is one of them, yes. I believe in the next couple of weeks it'll get bigger. Right now they have the union workers on Wall Street, the union workers, the labor departments, they've all joined together everybody's starting to pick up and say, you know, we support those people on Wall Street. We're right there with them. We're working hard every day, and we, we're just not getting ahead. That's, that's not the way it should be. If you work hard, you should be able to have something to, to show and, and account for. But a lot of people right now are working hard, and they're not getting anywhere. They're struggling to pay their bills if they have a house. So it, it's going to take a lot before these people give up. 
what if what if things turn violent? What if what if the crowd control um, starts involving tear gas and rubber bullets? Do you even see that happening? Uh, we are a peaceful protest. We are hoping nothing like that happens. Uh, the NYPD has already shown that they can be, you know, overbearing if, if they so choose. We are trying to maintain peaceful. We don't want any any violence toward anybody. We know that half the police, you know, department out there is in the same boat with us, but they have a job to do. We're we're hoping everybody stays peaceful. We're hoping that they can maintain their civility, and just let us have our right afforded in the Constitution to assemble and protest what we think is wrong in, in America. Bert, thank you so much for joining us today and giving us some insight into these national protests. Uh, thank, thank you, you again. very much. Bert Canavelli is the organizer of OccupyTheNation.com. You're listening to New America Now. If you'd like to hear more from this guest, visit us online at newamericanow.org. It was exactly 10 years ago today, just under one month after the 9-11 attacks, that the long war began. That is, the war with Afghanistan, the longest war in U.S. history. Now, nearly 12,000 U.S. military casualties and over 1,500 U.S. military deaths later, and countless numbers of Afghan civilian deaths, the lowest estimates are at 10,000, the war yet goes on. Joining us today to discuss the war and its impact on Afghan Americans in particular is journalist Fariba Nava. Welcome to the show, Fariba. Thank you very much, Shireen. It's been 10 years of war. Yes, it has been 10 years of war. Many lives lost and many people disappointed by the U.S. intervention in Afghanistan. When you, when you say many people disappointed, does that include Afghan Americans? Oh, definitely. I think the expectation in our community was that things would change for the better. And they have in many areas of Afghanistan, but not long term. And I think that was the expectation that we would see positive changes for a better future for Afghanistan. And it doesn't look like anything is going to change. If not, we're going to re- revert back to how things were under the Taliban. And um, most Afghans did not expect that. Why would they have? Why would they have expected? Anything else? Uh, war is not exactly the best way to solve problems, is it? <laughs> no, I think not. But I think most Afghan, Afghans and Afghan Americans, you'll find, are not pacifists. Um, they they believe in um, in defending themselves. And in the situation under the Taliban, many Afghans thought that they were under Pakistani control and under Arab control. And I think that's the, the idea that the Taliban are a homegrown um, insurgency movement, a resistance that comes from only Afghanistan is a misconception. So the, many of the people here in this community and in Europe and Australia thought that it was a necessary intervention. And it would be, like I said, it would free the people of Afghanistan from this 
tyrannical rule that did not give women any rights, that took away rights from men as well. And these, these, the Taliban do not have any expertise in anything. They have God and they have opium and they have guns. And that's what they ran the country with. What is what is the consensus or what are some of the theories that you're hearing from the Afghan-American community about what went wrong? The first thing that went wrong among the people that I talked to, and it's not just Afghan-Americans. Afghan-Americans are involved with Afghanistan very closely. That's what changed before 2001 and now when the war began. We were not as in touch with Afghanistan as we are now. People go back constantly now. Um, there, there is there's a, a, an abundance of exchange on Facebook, on on television, on the satellite television stations. That's what's changed the communication and the transnational connection. So w- when I talk about the Afghan reaction, I'm talking about a mixture of people inside Afghanistan as well as those who are here, and the. The first mistake that was made was going to Iraq and uh, turning attention away from Afghanistan. The second mistake that was made was knowing that the Taliban were regrouping in Pakistan, understanding that the Pakistani ISI was deeply involved and engaged in in wanting this resistance or wanting the U.S. to fail, basically, but still allowing it to happen. And we still don't understand that. They were so involved with getting rid of al-Qaeda that they neglected to look at the bigger issue in the area, in the region, which was the the Taliban, and that they could come back, and they have come back with a vengeance. Is is it too late to undo what has been done in these last 10 years? From, From what I'm seeing... It is just now that the United States is starting to get tough with Pakistan. And I understand that the Pakistani situation, and it's not just Pakistan, it's also Iran. Iran is is a pesky neighbor, but it's just more dubious than Pakistan, to, to talk tough with them. Um, and that needed to happen in the beginning. Um, but I, don't, I think it's a bit too late now. In, in the, we're in a situation where... Uh, the U.S. and the current Afghan government has lost most, a lot of support. And credibility. And credibility. And credibility, correct? I'm sorry. Do you want me to start that over again? No, no. And, and credibility. Oh, and credibility. Of course, yeah. So you're going to cut this. <laughs> it's so messed up. Okay, I'll... yeah. They've, the United States has lost credibility, as well as the current Afghan government, and support for the war effort. I think what we need to focus on now, and I agreed with the military intervention from the beginning, with war, yes, war, let's say war. But at this point, from what I've seen, I think we need to move on. And moving on means is is talking not necessarily to people who are going to make life worse for Afghans, but coming up with a solution that that is going to bring peace. And I'm not sure exactly what that is, but that to me, a peacekeeping force seems to be an answer rather than a combat mission there. When you when you spoke of when you spoke of Iran, uh, Iran and Pakistan, uh, Afghanistan's pesky neighbors, as you referred to them, you you talked about the U.S., 
mediating. Why is the U.S. the one that should mediate in a region that is so far away from the United States? In your because opinion, because the U.S. Well, we need to. The U.S. has been there for the last ten years. Well, it's actually been there since the 1960s. It's been meddling in Afghan affairs because of the Cold War. And we can go back historically to talk about what has happened over the last 40, uh, 50 years. But because of that, because the U.S. has been involved, it now has a responsibility to stay involved. And some people are of the opinion that the U.S. should get out altogether. Well, it did. In 1992, the U.S. was no longer involved in any way. Um, the Taliban came, the, the, the Mujahideen came first and destroyed Kabul. We had a civil war. This is what I say to a lot of anti-war um, people, and, and San Francisco happens to have a lot of them. They think that if the U.S. gets out, then Afghanistan will be at peace. No, it won't. We'll have another war. It is going to be an inevitable civil war, and it will be much more bloody and horrible than what you see on the ground right now. Afghans, um, so, Afghans seem like an independent people, a proud people. Why would they want someone else to fight their war? The problem is that it's, it's much more complicated than that. There are a lot of myths about Afghanistan. The myth that we're warriors and we're independent. You we, said we that, have but been, you said that. Yeah, we have been, yeah, I did. I did. I, I did. We are an independent people, and there is a national identity. There is a, a need for a national sovereignty, but there, the myth that we are these warriors that don't allow people to conquer our land is a myth. Afghanistan has been conquered over and over again. What it, it's, I'll use a term by, by the historian Barfield, who says Afghanistan is not the graveyard of empires, it's the cradle of empires. So over thousands of years, you've had Afghanistan conquered by various empires, and it has co-opted them. Um, and so therefore, I think Afghanistan is very capable of its own sovereignty, but at the same time, its geographic position in the world, and in, in, in modern Afghanistan especially, is problematic because it it is a buffer zone between nations and empires that have used it uh, to 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 fight each other, basically. Other countries and other empires' battles are fought inside Afghanistan. Why do Afghan Americans have such a different opinion of this war than the Afghans who are in Afghanistan right now? Because I've, I've interviewed several of, of the more prominent ones in the country right now, and they seem to strongly disagree with what you're saying. They, they don't agree that the U.S. should have been there in the first place in 2001. They don't agree that the U.S. should stay. Why is that difference there? I don't, you know, the people that I speak to, it all depends. Maybe you're speaking to a specific, again, there are various opinions in Afghanistan. I mean, we're not a monolithic people as well. You'll get different opinions from different cities. You'll get different opinions from different uh, cities. And I think it all depends. I think in the South, you might get people who support the Taliban and who want the U.S. to leave and never wanted it there to begin with. Um, in the North, you might get a different opinion. Um, where there's security and peace right now, you might people are scared if the U.S. leaves because they're scared they're going to lose the opportunities they they have been given while the U.S. and the coalition has been there. If you go on the ground to Afghanistan during the Taliban, after Taliban, I saw the differences. There is a big difference. There are thousands of more clinics and schools, uh, girls in school, uh, job opportunities. Um, 
that that you can't deny came into existence after the the war began there uh, against the Taliban. So these are facts that we can talk about. And again, it's not long term, and that's the main issue. And that's why I think this war has to draw down, and we have to look for other strategies and other solutions. But I I think that the opinion may be different um, because you're talking to various people in different positions. My position comes from that of someone who's been there, who's lived there for five years during the war period, who's been there before the war period. I lived there during the Soviet invasion. I lived there, you know, after the Taliban were ousted. And then I visited there during the Taliban time. And so I have a perspective of all three. And and I've talked to people from across backgrounds. But again, it's my general opinion and, and, and my own positionality as a woman um, and, and as an Afghan American, mostly. You you mentioned that as a result of this war, uh, the Afghan American population has become closer to their country, to to their homeland, to Afghanistan. They travel there more. Uh, they they feel a closer connection to their country. What has happened to the relationship with with the U.S. government, with with the United States, with being an immigrant to America? Has that changed in any way in these last ten years for Afghan Americans? I think Afghan Americans have become more influential. They have more of a voice. Obama listens to what Afghan Americans have to say. There are many advisors in the State Department who are Afghan Americans. Um, And for Afghan Americans to return to Afghanistan is somewhat difficult because the Afghans there are very resentful against us. It's not just Afghan Americans, it's Afghans in the diaspora communities, which is across the world. At some point, we we made up the largest community refugee community in the world. So uh, there were six million of us outside of Afghanistan. I don't know what the the current figures are now. But again, the the refugee population, many of them repatriated after the Taliban were ousted. Um, But I think once many of us returned, we had to deal with that resentment on the other side and reconnect. Um, And of course, there were cultural barriers, language barriers, um, and all types of barriers, but I think that connection has been made. Many Afghan Americans, and it hasn't always been positive, many Afghan Americans have gone back and made money, um, were, did contracting. Some, some people came back and got caught and went to jail in the U.S. For, for committing crimes and frauding the United States government, taking USAID money and, and not putting it to good use. Fadiba, thank you so much for joining us and giving us an insight into the Afghan American community 10 years after the war began. Thank you, Shadi. Fadiba Nava is an Afghan American journalist. This is New America Now. I'm Shireen Sadegi. This next segment is a collection of student reactions to the mayoral debate held at City College in San Francisco recently. The New America Media-sponsored event showcased 13 hopefuls in this year's mayoral election race. All over the world, students are showing how important their voices are 
and we want to thank these candidates for coming and honoring the students here at City College. At City College in San Francisco on September 28th, a mayoral debate was held by New American Media to connect the students of City College to the candidates running for mayor. At the Diego Rivera Theater, around 200 students, varying in ages, came to watch the event. The CCF students had the candidates answer three rounds of pointed questions on everything from education and crime to how the candidates intend to help the ever-present homeless population in San Francisco and what plans they have to fix public transportation. Here's a little sample of the debate and the candidates' idea of how to fix Muni. It's about the people who work for the city. They're 26, 27,000 people, and I want to focus on the operators. Imagine if we actually had lanes that were dedicated to buses so they don't have to wait behind cars. I propose we build a brand new Muni subway system, and I propose that it be free. The problem with Muni today isn't the Muni. The problem is with the union that controls Muni. I live in Chinatown for the last 35 years, and I have very serious doubt about the central subway. We have to revamp or clean the corruption of Muni from the top to the bottom. I would not appoint as executive director someone just for political reasons, and that's exactly what happened. I think in order to fix Muni, you need a mayor who actually is going to ride Muni. I get around town on Muni, on my bicycle, with city car share, and I've been proud of my record of fighting for transit reform. We want to, by year 2020, add 100,000 more riders take 50,000 cars off of our roads. Muni is the glaring example of the disparities in San Francisco, and it is absolutely wrong. The debate went as most of them do, with the candidates promising things to be done if they were elected mayor. A few candidates took their opportunity to take some pretty entertaining pot shots at their opponents on the panel for the coup of the crowd. <laughs> Students trickled in and out of the room, going in and out of their classes. After it was over, a few students spoke about what they saw and didn't see from the candidates. My name is Sean Nally. Uh, I'm 18 years old, and I'm undecided about my major currently. Uh, what would you say are some of the issues that you most wanted them to address? Mostly education, because as a student, I care about my education very much, and I care that I have a good education. Did any of them address education to uh, the way you wanted them to? Did you hear anything that sort of sparked your, your interest? The person that had the best answer would be Joanna Reese, but also I support David Chu as well because he, has, he had some very good answers as well. What would you say needs to be reformed in education? What is it exactly that you have a problem with and would like to see uh, change? California isn't doing too well in education compared to other states. I think we're 47, 48th out of the 50, but our prison spending is the first. And I believe we need to spend more money on education, focus more on the budget towards education. Um, if we were able to invest more in education, I think we'd have uh, more successful students. My name is Obi Rambo. I'm 22. He's a double major in political science and philosophy. I think for the students who may not be familiar with the candidates, it does help them. But you know, to the to the other amount of us that may not even trust government completely, it's not as you know, it's really not doing anything but either confirming things for us or making us kind of rally behind one person that we think may be the best person for the job. You know, it seems like today we're now choosing between, you know, a really bad candidate and a terrible candidate. So we go with the bad candidate, you know, outright. Gregory Santos. He's a business economics major. And he's a little more cynical about the debate. 
and the motives of the candidates. Every candidate has a certain business backing them, and I wanted to figure out what their agenda was really going to be once they got into office, like who is in their pocket. For instance, one person was talking about green jobs, so we know that the uh, green power industry is backing this person in their campaign, and another person was speaking out for Muni, so we know that Muni's backing them in their campaign. I want to know what that agenda is going to do to our city. And that's what I'm worried about, what businesses are going to be brought in and which laws are going to be passed and which aren't going to be passed because they're, uh, you know, our mayor. The frustration young people have with politics, being all words and no action, was a common thread in the interviews following the debate. Though some students are skeptical of the motives of the politicians on the panel, others appreciate the candidates' willingness to connect with the student body. What really stood out to me was how they were like presenting how they're going to attack the problem. But then they're like basically stating like what other politicians are saying, like they'll do the problem, they'll solve, try to solve it, but then usually nothing ends up getting done. But debates at campuses or at any local event recreate that connection and a re-involvement. Like I think the whole my vote doesn't matter thing really starts to dissipate when you see political action right in the front door. For New American Media, I'm Donnie Lumpkins. Those were voices from a mayoral debate hosted by New America Media recently. The segment was produced by Donnie Lumpkins and Malcolm Marshall of New America Media. Listening to New America Now, dispatches from the New Majority on KALW 91.7 FM in San Francisco. I'm Shireen Sadegi. For more stories, visit us on the web at newamericanow.org. in your ear isn't just an annoyance. It's a bug, a mosquito, and it could be deadly. Of the world's 3,200 species of mosquitoes, approximately 70 of them carry malaria, a disease that has been around since the dawn of the human race and appears will be around long after the last human walks the earth. Author Sonia Shaw has spent years studying malaria, Her new book, The Fever, sheds light on a disease that seems remote to Americans, but might not be for long. Sonia, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So tell us what your book, The Fever, is about. Well, it's sort of an overview of this incredible little parasite um, that causes the disease malaria. Um, And it starts from how the parasite evolved and kind of walks through the history of how it's been sort of a scourge throughout our history as a species. So you've basically written a book about something that 
perhaps many people are familiar with but don't know the details of. The, the way you write about this thing, it sounds like it's the Black Plague, the way you talk about malaria. Um, but as you say in your book, compared to other diseases out there, it isn't exactly the number one killer in the world, is it? Well, it's a, it's a huge killer over the lar- long span of history. So there's an estimate that since the Stone Age, malaria has killed um, half of all human deaths have been due to malaria since the Stone Age. So it's really exacted a huge toll over the sort of the long span of our history. Um, this year, uh, malaria will kill about a million people. It'll infect upwards of 300 million people this year. And we're talking about a disease that we know how to cure, and we've known how to cure it for hundreds of years. And we know how to prevent it, and we've known how to prevent it for over 100 years. So when you think about those kinds of parameters, it's kind of amazing how, uh, how successful this malaria parasite has really been in plaguing us for all these, all these uh, long numbers of years. So these people that are dying, the approximately 1 million people a year, are they just not getting the proper treatment? Or is the treatment that, we, that you say that we are familiar with just not going to work on some people? Treatments will work. Um, it, yeah, it seems like it should be pretty simple to reach people because the treatments are actually very effective and they um, aren't expensive anymore either. Uh, the trouble is that... There's a lot of malaria that occurs that doesn't lead to death. So death by malaria is actually rare. There's so much malaria infection going on in some of these communities, say in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, you know, in some places a child by the age of two might have had 12 episodes of malaria. So, and, and people in some communities will get upwards of hundreds of bites from infected malaria mosquitoes every year. So there's just a huge amount of malaria going on, so much so that people don't run to the doctor every time they get a bout of malaria. It's sort of like how you and I might deal with a cold or a flu, where ordinarily, you know, these are things that resolve on their own, so we don't actually seek treatment necessarily. Well, well, malaria is sort of similar in the sense that there's so much of it that people don't necessarily seek treatment for when they get sick with malaria. The trouble is that in those rare cases when malaria does kill, um, and it's a very small fraction, but there's so much malaria that it adds up to this big number of deaths. So you you just mentioned that that people in sub-Saharan Africa or perhaps in India or the Indian subcontinent um, would could get 12 episodes of malaria uh, even at, up till the age of two, by the age of two, they've had it 12 times. What, is, what does that mean? What is, what is an episode of malaria? You know, the typical symptoms are very high fever, followed by chills. And this is the malaria parasite enters your body with the bite of an infected mosquito. And those parasites, um, they hide in your liver for a while and they come out and they start infecting your, blood, your red blood cells. And what they do is they eat the hemoglobin inside your red blood cells. So this slowly makes you more and more anemic. Um, And at the same time, when they burst out of those red blood cells, it kills the cells. It also makes you spike these really high fevers. Um, So the fevers go on for a while, then they subside and you'll have chills and then you'll feel fine for a a small, you know, maybe a couple days. And then it'll come back again. So it's a cyclical um, series of symptoms that leaves people feeling very anemic over time and also can lead to depression and other, um, you know, and other more serious complications. But it's certainly, you know, some people also will gain immunity to this 
parasite doing this in their body. So after you've had a half dozen or a dozen episodes of malaria, you might not get so sick every time. You'd still have parasites inside your body. They would still be reproducing and you would still be infecting other mosquitoes who will carry on the infection. But you yourself may not feel so sick anymore. So that's how the malaria parasite is able to survive um, so you know, widespread throughout this huge part of the, of the globe. And and where where exactly is it? Or or perhaps I should ask where isn't it malaria found? Well, we used to have malaria all all over the world. I mean, there used to be malaria all over the United States. It was considered the American disease um, a few centuries ago, and we only got rid of malaria in this country in the 1930s or so. So right before DDT came online, and that was really kind of the final nail in the coffin for malaria in the United States. Um, there was malaria across Europe, and there still is malaria in some parts of southern Europe. Um, malaria is coming back to um, parts of Italy and parts of France now with climate change related, most likely, and also more travelers introducing the disease into, into those areas. Um, but today, primarily malaria is, you know, the deaths from malaria occur in sub-Saharan Africa, but we have a lot of malaria occurring in um, South America and across uh, South Asia and Southeast Asia. I just want to point out that you mentioned DDT, which is that insecticide that was used um, decades ago in this country and, and was later banned because of the effects that it was found to have on, on births and, and basically on human health. Um, you, you mentioned in your book that there's actually only one place in the world where malaria does not exist, and that's Polynesia. What is that's right. What is that? Yes. Why is that? Um, you know, I'm not exactly sure, but there's there's many different parameters that you, that need to be there to, for malaria transmission to occur. And the most important probably is that the right species of mosquitoes are there. So most mosquitoes repel uh, malaria parasites. So when malaria parasites try to enter their bodies, they have an innate immune response that sort of gets rid of it. So most mosquitoes are not able to carry malaria because they fight it off themselves. There's only one genus of mosquitoes that have a kind of a tepid immune response, and so they are able to carry malaria. And if, of, those, of that whole genus, there's probably only a, a dozen or so that carry most of the world's malaria. So in some places of the world, those, those malarial mosquitoes just may not be, um, you know, might not be present. There might be other mosquitoes that have taken up that habitat so that these malarial mosquitoes can't survive. So, you know, that can be a really important determinant of how much malaria is in an area or whether there's a place where there's absolutely no malaria at all. And it's common that in certain islands where there's not a lot of introductions of mosquitoes from other places, um, that those places can either be malaria-free, just naturally malaria-free, or also can get rid of their malaria and keep it out for, you know, for for years and years and years. And that's happened again and again in, in the history of malaria. There's an interesting sentence in your book where you where you tell us and and you don't really come back to this but it, it just it struck me as fascinating. You you tell us that the mosquito that is looking for human blood finds her victim by following a trail of lactic acid and carbon dioxide in exhalations. So the the just the way that we breathe will attract a certain kind of mosquito? What does that mean? That's how they find us. So they, they have, you know, they're sensitive to chemicals that we're emitting in our, 
in our breath. Um, they also are sensitive to smells that come off our feet. So we know that, for example, there's been recent studies showing that if you drink beer at night and, uh, you know, in the evening, you drink some beers in the evening, you're, it will change the chemistry of your exhalations at night and actually in a way that attracts more mosquitoes to you. Um, there's also been studies shown that mosquitoes are attracted to the smell of your feet. So these are just different ways in which the mosquito can find, you know, where the human being is. I mean, they, this is a very important behavior for the female mosquito. She needs blood not for nourishment. I mean, if it was just nourishment, she could get that from somewhere else. She needs the blood to, um, to reproduce. So it, this, is, this is blood she takes in so that she can produce her eggs. Um, so it's really, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a serious matter for a mosquito. It's, it's really the whole sort of chain of their reproduction relies on the female mosquito finding uh, a person who they can get some blood from. Why should Americans be interested in malaria? You mentioned that malaria was basically gotten rid of in, in, the, in the United States around 19, the 1930s. Why should they care uh, about uh, a problem that's probably not going to affect them, according to what you say? I think it does affect us, actually. I mean, you know, when we tra- if, if we, you and I travel to a malarious place, um, we are definitely vulnerable to getting infected by malaria. Um, it also just, uh, you know, our, our world is interconnected now. So we see mosquito-borne diseases are already coming back to the United States. All the mosquitoes that used to carry malaria in the United States are still here. They are outside my window right now um, waiting to bite me. So the fact that they are not infected with malaria parasites right now is really just a product of our of our political commitment to our own public health system. Um, And you see things like, you know, in the wake of Hurricane Katrina or some of these horrible hurricanes we've been having even recently, where um, our first responder systems start to break down, where our water and sanitation measures start to break down. Um, Those are all times in which someone who comes in and has a few malaria parasites in their blood uh, can pass it on to local mosquitoes and we can start transmission again. So we're not as immune as we might think we are. Um, We're already seeing dengue fever come back to Florida. We're seeing West Nile virus, another mosquito-borne disease, has spread sort of inexorably across the country and we've really not been able to stop it at all. So I think the story of malaria really tells us a lot about our own history and our own vulnerabilities to our environment and how important it is to maintain our public health infrastructure. Sonia Shaw, thank you so much for joining us today to discuss your book, The Fever. Thank you. Author Sonia Shaw's new book, The Fever, is about malaria. Now, dispatches from the new majority. I'm Shireen Sadegi. The Armenian Genocide began in the late 19th century and continued on through the first two decades of the 20th. It was, in fact, the first genocide of the 20th century, and hundreds of thousands, some say 1.5 million, Armenian lives later, the Armenian genocide had made its mark on history. What remains is the story of their lives, told by those who came after. 
Toranj Yeghiazarian is the founding director of Golden Thread Middle Eastern Theater in the San Francisco Bay Area. Her theater's production of Night Over Erzinga is a sparkling and moving adaptation of one family's story. She joins us today to discuss the play. Welcome to the show, Toranj. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. So... Tell us about the Armenian genocide first, so that our listeners can understand what the background to this play is. Um, during the uh, final years of the Ottoman Empire, um, it was a crumbling empire, and um, as many crumbling empires uh, sort of take out the, their grievances on the immigrants and the minorities, so did the Ottoman Empire. And there were two major waves of massacres, um, one in late 19th century and one in early 20th century. And as a result, a million and a half Armenians were massacred and displaced. Let's talk about Night Over Erzinga. That's the play that, is, that has been premiered at Golden Thread Theater, your theater company that you mm-hmm. founded. Um, and it is about the Armenian genocide and what happened to families several generations later who ended up in America and what it meant for them. Can you tell us what the play was? Um, so Night Over Erzinga is written by Adriana Sevan Nichols. She is a, an artist of Armenian, Dominican, and American background. Um, our company, Golden Thread Productions, is focused on the Middle East, and we define the Middle East broadly and inclusively. I should say that many Armenians don't consider themselves necessarily Middle Eastern. But uh, possibly as a result of my own personal background or because of this broad definition of the Middle East, we do include um, Armenians and various uh, minorities of the Middle East in our um, collection of plays and productions. Uh, Night Over Zinga specifically is inspired by Adriana's own family history. Her grandfather's family uh, Uh, was killed. Um, They lived in Erzinga and they were killed as part of the massacres. And her grandfather was the only surviving member of his family who ended up uh, in Massachusetts and established a new life. There he met another sole survivor uh, of an Armenian family, Alice, and together they began a new life. Um, For me, the play is really more about the role of memory in in our lives and how we handle memory. Um, Alice is plagued by the memory of what happened to her family because she actually witnessed it. Uh, and this our, is all true. This is, this all, is true. all true. Well, I mean, so it's, let's be clear that the play is inspired by a family history. It's not, you know, moment by moment factual. Mm-hmm. So, um, You know, the part of it that is absolutely true is Ardavaz, the grandfather, was sent to the U.S. before his family was murdered. Um, So Ardavaz, the character in the play, um, his way of dealing with a traumatic memory is that he just puts it behind him and he can't talk about it. He refuses to acknowledge it. Um, And so the two characters clash And Alice is ultimately institutionalized because she's plagued by nightmares and images of blood, etc. And um, and Ardavas has to raise their sole daughter, who then becomes alienated from her past and her family because she was never taught about it. And um, 
And so she has to go through a process of reconnecting with her father, mainly because she now has a daughter of her own who needs to know about her past. It's, it's, it's really just a typical American immigrant story, isn't it? It's people um, I think who... in many ways it is. I think many of uh, uh, American immigrant communities share this uh, background of having survived trauma and having established a new life and this focus on absolute future and success without um, an acknowledgement of the past. Because obviously one way that we cope with trauma is that we just block it, right? It's It's interesting to have you on the show because we don't, necessarily hear a great deal about Armenian Americans in the American media. Um, I, I hate to say it, but the only really famous Armenian American right now uh, are, is Kim Kardashian and the Kardashian <laughs> clan. It's um, not too bad, is it? <laughs> but surely you must, you must be dreading that, considering that there are much more esteemed Armenian Americans in history. Um, the recent passing of, of Jack Kevorkian, for instance, Dr. Mm -hmm. Jack Kevorkian, um, highlighting that. Can you tell us more about some of the names um, of Armenian Americans? Well, certainly the first name that comes to mind is William Soroyan, whose family did settle in the U.S. in Fresno, in fact, um, East Coast and then California. Um, as a result of the Armenian genocide. And he has been a huge uh, contributor to uh, American theater. Um, and while he uh, is acknowledged as an Armenian, I don't think people really think of him as an Armenian because, of course, when someone is not a terrorist, they're sort of endorsed as real Americans, right? Uh, so, um, well, William Soroyan, I think, is uh, a great example. Eric Bogosian is, um, um, you know, the solo performer and um, social commentator, I guess. Um, he's another uh, famous Armenian. Um, and then we have this uh, amazing rock band in L.A. That their name System of the System Dawn. of the Dawn. That's right. Exactly. So, and in fact, while I was in Armenia last summer, um, he was there for a concert and people were just, you know, beside themselves and tickets were selling at, you know, exorbitant amounts. So... Yeah. Wow. I, I didn't realize that he was doing concerts in Armenia. Mm -hmm. it, it's interesting when you talk about Armenian Americans that you you sort of you sort of highlight you sort of mentioned it that they perhaps had an easier time of assimilating in this country because their religion was Christianity. Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't like the other Middle Eastern uh, religions um, that, that perhaps you cover in, in, at Golden Thread Theater. Mm -hmm. Is that true? Is it be was it easier because they were Christian? Um, I, I, I think that that's um, perhaps a, a generalization and an assumption. It's true that most Armenians are Christian, and it's true that Christianity is a big part of the Armenian identity. Uh, and I think Armenians historically have aligned themselves with Christian nations. Um, I think, you know, a lot of our ability to assimilate has to do with economic success in the U.S., and many of the Armenians who came to the U.S. as a result of ge the genocide came as refugees with really nothing. So those who could sort of um, succeed economically, I think, assimilated easier, and those who could not um, succeed economically, I think they felt culturally more isolated and as a result, um, you know, felt 
unhappy and alienated in this society. So the the church plays an important part in in the play that Night Over Erzinga. It's it's also the place where um, people meet. It's where they had their community functions when these immigrants came to the United States, either just before the genocide as, as one of the characters experienced in, in the play or, or just after. Um, why, w- why do you think this was highlighted in the play in the way that it was? It, w- it, wasn't, it wasn't about the religion. It was about the community. Um, absolutely. I think religion is an aspect of the community. It's not the singular you know, definition or image of that community. In fact, um, we don't really have a church scene per se in the play. And Ardavaz and Alice meet outside of a dance event. They right. meet outside of Club Baba um, at a at an Armenian dance, which was uh, another um, social gathering. Uh, event, uh, an opportunity for these new immigrants to uh, spend time together and network and um, and connect and get married and you know have children, which is uh, that is an important aspect of the the play. This f- sense of responsibility, having survived to you know to to, to have to children, reproduce, to yeah, reproduce. that's what Absolutely. it was, wasn't it? Yeah. What's coming next at Golden Thread? Well, I'm glad you asked that. It's uh, called uh, a play. Um, Sorry, it's called uh, Language Rooms by Yusuf El-Gindi. Uh, and it's interesting, you know, Night Over Erzinga is, ve- is written by a woman, Adriana Savan Nichols. And it's very much, I feel, a feminine story. It's fluid. It moves beautifully through time and space. It spans three generations. It's a family story. I think the way it looks at life and life experience is a very feminine uh, perspective. And then Language Rooms has a cast of four men. It's written by a man, Yusuf El-Gindi, um, and it's a political satire, and it's very sharp. It's, um, you know, if, if Night Over Zynga is round, <laughs> the Language it's Rooms is angular, <laughs> and it's a square, and, and it's, a, it's a dark comedy about, um, again, another immigrant experience. It's about uh, dual loyalties. How long has Golden Thread been around? Uh, Golden Thread Productions was established in 1996. We did our first production, Operation No Penetration, uh, in uh, 1997. And um, the first few years, we were were a fiscally sponsored project of uh, Intersection for the Arts. And then by 2001, we established our own board of trustees and became a nonprofit and have been producing regularly since then. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today. Look forward to your future productions as well, Toranj. Thank you very much. Thanks to your listeners. Toranj Yeghiazarian is the founding artistic director of Golden Thread Middle Eastern Theatre Company in the San Francisco Bay Area. The play Night Over Erzinga continues at the Fort Mason Center in San Francisco through October 9. For more information, go to www.goldenthread.org. listening to New America Now, dispatches from the new majority. Inter-ethnic, international, and intergenerational news for the new America. If you'd like to hear more from any of our guests today or subscribe to a podcast of our program, go to newamericanow.org. New America Now is produced at the KALW Studios in San Francisco by New America Media. 
Thanks for joining us. I'm Shireen Sadegi. 